One of the most important and more than a little worrying questions that liberal democracies like Australia and the UK are facing is whether the institutions that we're used to are up to the huge challenges that confront us today in an age of digital transformation, climate change and increasingly international conflict. I'm very pleased to say that on RN Now, we're joined by one of the UK's leading thinkers on those questions. James Plunkett is the author of End State, Nine Ways Society is Broken and How We Fix It, which made The Guardian newspaper's list of the best politics books of 2021. In 2022, James has started a new project with the Joseph Rowntree Foundation called Social Justice in a Digital Age. And the first essay in that series was published this week. It's called The Invidious Hand a phrase which, of course, harks back to Adam Smith's metaphor of the invisible hand to explain the way market forces operate in a capitalist economy. James Plunkett, welcome to RN. Hello, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure, James. Before we dive into the invidious hand, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about some of the twists and turns in your own personal career and how they've shaped the thinking that led to end state and now the invidious hand. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess the big thing is my career has spanned politics and technology to some degree. So I, back in the day, was working in uh, in Downing Street in the in the Brown government in the late 2000s. And it was actually there that I first had the thought that led to my book, End State, which was in a meeting between uh, Gordon Brown and Tim Berners-Lee, who, as people will know, is credited with a you know, very formative influencer in, in the creation of the internet. Um, and I remember being struck in that conversation about the very different ways in which Brown, as a politician, I suppose, of the 20th century, thought about the world and the way Tim Berners-Lee thought about the world. I sat in, in a meeting with them, watching them sort of try to have a conversation, and it almost seemed like they were speaking different languages. Hmm. This idea of the way that government thought about problems in sort of pulling big levers and the big silos of Whitehall departments. And then Tim Berners-Lee, obviously, very much thought in terms of the internet, of networks, platforms, big data, algorithms. It was then that I had this thought, I was left feeling quite uneasy about this disconnect between, if you like, you know, 20th century government institutions and ways of thinking and this emerging 21st century economy that was sort of personified by Berners-Lee. And my career then, I, I spent some time in America studying public policy, came back and worked in think tanks in the UK, working on living standards, low pay, childcare, mostly from an economic angle. Um, and then I moved into charity work working at a big NGO in the UK and started to run technology teams. And it all seemed to me over that sort of decade and a half to add up to this growing sense that government was falling behind. This new kind of economy you know, characterised by digital technology was emerging and our governing institutions were increasingly struggling to cope with that new economy. And that, that sort of become the theme of my book and of this new project that you mentioned up front. Yes, the invisible hand was a metaphor grounded in confidence in the way that the market works. But the theme underlying the invidious hand, James, is that choice and competition function differently now that we live in a, a digital world. And in particular, you say a, a world of digital platforms. Could you explain that a little bit for us? Yeah, I, I think this is one of the most significant implications of, of digital technology that's emerging is that uh, markets seem to work differently now to the way they worked, if you like, in the pre-internet era, and is causing a headache for economic regulators, in particular within governments. And, you know, I think we've all noticed this kind of sense that markets have a kind of compulsiveness to them now, and there's a sort of slight sense that we spend our lives trying to avoid binging 
um, avoid doom scrolling, the sense that when we're making choices online, that there's this just sort of um, highly sophisticated attempt to manipulate our behaviours. You know, the way that you sign up to a subscription, you don't quite intend it, and then you realise later that it's become a monthly subscription. These bills that you sign up to initially, it seems like a good deal, and then you check later and it's the price has gone up without you noticing and it's rolled over. And I think the thing I'm getting at in this latest essay is that a lot of the faith that we put in markets historically was based on this idea that Adam Smith had of the invisible hand. He had this famous story of the benevolent baker who makes us lovely crunchy bread for no other reason that they want to run a good bakery. And it's in their self-interest to make us a great product that we want to buy. And that was what kind of prompted this thought of the invisible hand, that the market makes our lives better because of the way it functions. And I increasingly think that you know many firms now find that the best way to turn a profit is to trick us, to manipulate us, to sort of lure us into these decisions that we, you know, do we really intend to sign up for the, the subscription? And so that's one of my big worries is that the way that we make choices in markets, the way that competition therefore functions is starting to become... You know, more invidious and a less, much less benign form of capitalism than the one that we all grew used to. One response to those sorts of excesses or unfairnesses in a market is simply to regulate the market in a better way. In what ways, James Plunkett, do you think that regulating digital economies and digital markets is or needs to be different from some of the tools that policymakers have used in the past to try and deal with some of these inequities? I think there's a couple of really big challenges facing regulators. And to be fair, many regulators are starting to respond to this. But in essence, the the way we thought about this in a pre-digital world was very different to the way we now need to think about it. So a couple of examples. So one is that on the consumer policy side of things, I suppose, we used to have what you might call quite prescriptive regulation. So you you would have essentially a rule book that said, the markets will deliver us the goods as long as you don't do the following 10 or 20 or 100 bad things. So you can't lie to people, for example. You can't mislead them in a really explicit way. That kind of thing. You can't do pressure selling tactics. And I think what regulators have found increasingly is that there's such a blurred line between what you can and can't do. And markets are so quick now to adapt that firms find ways around these loopholes. And so one thing regulators in the UK, at least, and and I think this is true internationally, have found is they just kept having to add more rules. And they they were in a kind of cat and mouse game with firms. As firms found new ways to break the rules, they would add more things that were banned. In the UK, the, the FCA, the financial regulator, ended up having to specify things like this kind of the size of the font on a letter that insurance companies send to people so that they're not tricking people by hiding the warnings, you know. And I think one thing that's happened with with the kind of speed of innovation now is that that old approach to prescriptive regulation, rule-based regulation is falling apart and regulators are having to take a more outcome-based approach. The other big theme, I think, is on competition. It's certainly this is true across mature economies that you know, what do we do about Google, about Facebook, these essentially monopolies that have emerged in these markets where they have huge market share? And again, historically, the tools we had were things like nationalizing these entities, regulating them as public utilities, breaking them up. Some people have called for breakups of big tech. You know, I'm not I'm not convinced those old mechanisms mm. would work. You break Google in half. Does anyone really want to have more than one search engine you know, in their lives? We need to do something about these monopolies for sure. But I think we need new tools, new, new ways of responding. 
On Sunday Extra, we're speaking with James Plunkett, author of End State, Nine Ways Society is Broken and How We Fix It, and the new essay called The Invidious Hand. James, in End State, you write of the contours of a new kind of government emerging from the fog, a, a new state that operates on the logic of the internet. Could you explain what you mean by that and tell us if there are yet successful real-world examples? Yeah, I think it's a big question. I think you know, the, the honest answer is it's still very early days. And I, I talk in the book about you know, this new kind of state is emerging from the fog slowly. And I think in a way, it's a bit similar to the early 20th century. So if, you, you know, if you'd asked that question in, say, 1910 or 1920 about what, what, what does a social democratic state look like, we could have had a guess, but we would have probably not been able to predict what will the state look like by 1960. And by that time, as we know now, we would have had national health services, we would have had very much expanded public education, we would have had welfare systems, social insurance, mandatory social insurance. And we could have guessed probably at some of those things in the early 20th century, but we probably would have got a lot wrong. And I think we're at a similar point now in terms of, you know, the state, in my view, the state in 2050, 2060, will look completely unrecognisable from what it looks like now. But I think a few contours are emerging. So, you know, one example, I think, is one thing that is very clearly outdated, I think, about the way that public policy works and government works is the sort of slowness and the linearity of policymaking processes. So we have these processes where we spot a new problem, we do some research into it, we maybe consult, we publish a green paper and then a white paper in the UK, um, and then we legislate. And then, you know, in Britain, we still wrap the law in vellum. Um, and then the law, you know, we pass the law as if it will be the law for a decade. And this is just not fit for purpose in a world where things change so quickly. So I do think part of it is about being able to operate as big digital companies do now um, with agility and try something out, test it, see if it works, tweak it, see if it works, tweak it and iterate. I think that's quite a big part of it. In general, I would say it's interesting that many of the big systems we built in the 20th century were technocratic or bureaucratic. So they ended up being these very complex systems, much like you know, the UK welfare system is a good example of this. And those very complex systems, I think, are just struggling to cope with the complexity of the modern world. So personally, I think this is why ideas like a universal basic income, where you would have a much simpler, flatter approach to public policy. Personally, I think though that kind of direction of travel is, is probably the one that we'll head in. You definitely tackle big themes and challenges with historical perspectives in, in your book and your essay, James. But listeners might be surprised to hear that the invidious hand has a section about Pokemon Go. Uh, why, why did Pokemon Go attract your attention? Yeah, I'm, I'm very interested, I mean, in where things are headed. And I think we are in the opening credits of this movie in terms of how technology is going to change our world. And we get occasional glimpses at what the future will be like. And I think one glimpse we had, oddly, was I think it was 2016, 2017, when Pokemon Go took off and it exploded. You know, Pokemon Go had more users than the whole of Twitter in America in seven days. And one thing that was fascinating about Pokemon Go is it's an example of what people sometimes call augmented reality, where you, know, you get this kind of digital layer over reality. For people who don't know the game, it meant that people were sort of chasing around these digital Pokemon around spaces in the real world and trying to hunt these Pokemon. And extraordinarily, many people in America died because they got in accidents, because they weren't looking where they were going in the real world. 
because they were chasing a digital Pokemon. And so people were hit by cars, there were car crashes. It's quite an extraordinary example of the kind of power of this digital layer, if you like, that kind of now mediates our interaction with reality. And I think it's a bit of a glimpse at this emerging trend where so much of our lives now and the way we interact with the physical world are mediated by technology platforms. So, you know, even, even something as simple as choosing where you eat at a restaurant in the evening, you know, you, you, you Google it, you look on Google Maps, you find a restaurant, you look at the reviews on Google. You know, are you choosing which restaurant to go to? I mean, in a way, in a way you've, you are, you're making a free choice about the restaurant, but your choice is entirely guided by information Google chooses to show you, the reviews. Um, and of course, there are incentives. You know, why does Google do what it does? It does what it does because it sells advertising um, and because it makes a lot of money by guiding our decisions. Um, so I think Pokemon Go is sort of the most extreme example of how our decisions and our behavior in the real world can be guided by this digital layer, if you like. But it's pervasive, this kind of thing. And I think it will become ever more significant, this question of how we make choices and how that is guided by these big technology platforms. And you describe it as a new frontier for the work of social justice. I realise the thinking about this is part of the project that you're engaged in now. So you don't have to have a complete answer for the new frontier of the work of social justice in a digital era right now, James Plunkett. But do you have a sense of how the idea of social justice might change along with the technology? I, I think this is fascinating. And I, I mean, I, I write a lot about history in my book because Oddly enough, history makes me feel quite optimistic on this front because it seems to me our response to the Industrial Revolution was it, it was a very similar time in some ways. So if you if you read letters and diary entries from the 1850s, um, for example, particularly in Britain, where the, the Industrial Revolution was really gaining momentum at that time, it felt like a kind of Wild West in the sense that these new injustices were emerging and coming to the fore, you know, child labour, for example, problems in the big cities, the kind of just terrible living standards people were confronting because of these new technologies that were upending the way we lived. And it felt like a kind of new frontier, quite an ungoverned frontier at the time. And what we you know now, now that we look back in hindsight, we responded to that new frontier with a new form of government. So we, you know, we came up with free education, free healthcare, social insurance, sewage systems to deal with the problem of urban sewage, you know, that we, we hadn't dealt with in the 1850s. And so we worked out how to govern a new economy, an industrial economy at that time. Now is, I think, in a way, the digital world, I call it in my essay, digital land, because I think it's in many ways, it is a whole new world. Is, is that Wild West again? It's ungoverned. And um, we haven't worked out yet how to govern our online lives. And I think we will invent new institutions, new laws, new ways of thinking, new mindsets um, to govern this new frontier. Some of them are emerging. It's interesting. There are ideas like, as I say, basic income. It's interesting that this idea of a four-day working week has emerged. Very similar in response to the Industrial Revolution, the idea of a five-day working week first emerged, and it was seen as radical at the time. People said, we can't possibly do this. We can't possibly afford a two-day weekend. And of course, we did in the end. Personally, I think we can see these new ideas, the sort of, as I said, the contours of a new state emerging. And it's a fascinating time to be alive and to be part of this formation of a new kind of government. One of the ideas that really grabbed me from end state is a different conception of equality and the idea of relational equality. Could you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, I think one of the things that's very interesting is is the way that, particularly in progressive politics, we've become quite narrow and, and technocratic, I suppose, in our thinking about even about big topics like inequality. So certainly in Britain, we've, we've almost come to reduce inequality down to you know a distributional chart. And so certainly, you know, whenever there's a budget day 
in the UK, there's what I call the chart wars the day after where people come out with all these different charts that say the budget is good for inequality or bad. We show the distribution and effects on household income. And of course, that is incredibly important. So you're not at all saying it's not important to think about the stats aspect of inequality. I think we, in a way we've lost sight of some of the more human aspects of inequality. Relational equality speaks to this. It speaks to the idea of, do you feel dignified? Can, can you live a dignified life? Can you have a conversation with someone in your society and feel equal to them? And do you feel respected? Do you feel a sense of status in the work that you do? Can you feel proud of where you come from and where you're going in life? Do you feel part of the future? And I think it's not a coincidence that across, I think, the Western world, if you like, there is a crisis of status and a crisis of esteem. And a, and a lot of the hot politics at the moment that's driven things like Brexit and Trump, Trumpism is in a way less a sense just of, if you like, money inequality. It's a sense of status inequality and a, a sense of anger that people feel at that, that lack of respect and that lack of status. Relational equality is about this idea that we shouldn't we shouldn't just care about the distribution of income. We should care about the distribution of status and esteem. And it seems to me the left has slightly lost that kind of more human aspect of inequality. And that should, I think, come back into the centre of political debate in coming years. Well, James Plunkett, it's been a great pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much for joining us on RN. The first essay in the Social Justice in the Digital Age series is called The Invidious Hand. What's coming next in that series, James? Yeah, so two more essays coming up. And uh, I should say up front, we're publishing these essays very much as provocation. So the whole point is to put some ideas out there for people to pick apart and critique. Certainly, I don't know the answer to any of this stuff. These are big questions. So it's about triggering a debate. But essay two, which is coming up mid-October, will be about care. So I'm fascinated in what happens to care in a high-tech society. And I, and I think we're seeing care get sidelined, becomes ever lower paid, uh, caring responsibilities. That's, that's the second essay. And then the third one will be about inequality, because I think um, inequality isn't just coming back. I think inequality is changing. I think the nature of inequality is very different in a digital economy to the one the inequality we grew used to in the past. So that'll be essay three in, uh, in November, all going well. We'll look forward to reading those contributions. James Plunkett, thank you again for speaking with us on RN. Thanks a lot. That's James Plunkett, author of The Guardian's political book of 2021, or one of them at least, End State, Nine Ways Society is Broken and How We Fix It. And you can read his latest essay, The Invidious Hand, on medium.com and we'll post a link to that on the Sunday Extra page too. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.